0: So welcome to everyone uh, to our LNG sector uh, panel. Again, just before we came live, we were discussing how on one hand, we're missing the, uh, the aspect of the physical conferences, but on the other hand, uh, modern technology brings us the opportunity to connect uh, top panelists from all over the world as well as top delegates. And indeed here we have today people who are logging in from Vancouver, from London, from Athens. Uh, from Oslo. Uh, So uh, we're delighted to have you with us and uh, LNC has been receiving a lot of attention uh, lately. Uh, uh, Jorgen is going to moderate the panel. Thank you DNB for being the partner of this conference uh, and for um, soldering the heavy lifting with us and thank you to each one of you for being on the panel and
1: the floor is yours. Thank you very much Niklas and uh, welcome to this panel, everyone listening in. Um, so to get with us today, just to run through everyone, we have, uh, we have Tony Lauritsen, CEO of Dyna Gas LNG Partners, Øystein uh, Kaloklev, CEO of Flex LNG, uh, Mark Kremen, President CEO of the TK Tankers, uh, or TK Gas Group, sorry, <laughs> and uh, Mr. Tarek Suki, uh, Executive Vice President of Tellurian and President of Tellurian Trading UK. Uh, and also uh, Christos Economo, founder of TMS Cardiff Gas. So with that, um, I think I'll just kick off uh, with a little backdrop to where we are. Um, LNG prices, um, they have been on a downward trajectory for the past years since uh, the Asian LNG price peaked at the $12 per mbtu during the winter of the 2017-18. Uh, This has had detrimental effects on the LNG shipping markets, uh, especially maybe this summer, as the economics for transportation of uh, long-haul LNG cargoes out of the new liquefaction capacity in the US to Asia disappeared. Um, Eventually stocks filled up in Europe and several cargoes were cancelled during the summer as LNG prices in Asia troughed even below $2 per MMBTU. So markets were all of a sudden flush with supply of gas and facing demand destructions, you can argue first from trade war uh, and then COVID-19. But Since the summer and now, both improving fundamentals and regular seasonality have since lifted gas prices and again opened up for shipping economics, and we believe we should be facing better times from here on out. Uh, However, recent markets uh, over the past years seem to have left investors somewhat skeptical to the prospects of LNG shipping markets going forward. And we hope today's panel uh, can shed some light on what's going on uh, and what we can hope for in the next months and years. So um, just to start off straight away tackling the big questions, I think we'll look uh, on the demand side. Um, And as an analyst and talking to investors, I get the perception that uh, Sustainability is getting an increasing uh, important uh, uh, standing among investors. Um, And some questions are regarding uh, LNG as well. Uh, Most estimates say that you've reached peak coal demand, uh, maybe as early as 2013-14. Peak oil demand on some estimates might even have been last year. Um, And then the question is LNG. Um, Is LNG... Uh, still uh, a good sort of transitional fuel uh, going forward and do investors have anything to fear in terms of long-term prospects of transporting LNG which is also uh, a fossil fuel. I'll leave the leave the floor open to the first one to pick up the mic.
2: I'm happy to start I guess just briefly and I won't take a lot of time but um, TK agrees with you about the on the oil side our understanding is that it's uh, if it hasn't peaked already, it's gonna go pretty slowly over the next uh, 20 or so years to 2040. As for LNG, our understanding is is very different. When we look at the, the scenarios, um, we see it growing under almost, actually under any scenario through 2040. So about four times faster than, um, than oil. And that, that includes even if the Paris Agreement is is met, we see that LNG grows. That's not necessarily the case even for natural gas, non liquefied gas, LNG has a special place. It's not merely a transition, it's not a short bridging fuel, it's here for the for the foreseeable future. And just before I, I just add in a couple extremes to that, um, if we look at, at Exxon Mobil, our understanding of Exxon Mobil is that they're gonna say, they say that peak oil is not gonna happen until 2040 and even, even coal is not gonna significantly soften by then. On the other side of the coin, you, say, you see DNB saying that peak energy will occur in 2030. But our view, at, looking at uh, the, the IEA and others, is that, is that LNG is going to be here under any scenario through 2040, at least.
1: Right. Anyone would like to add, Einstein?
0: I think, uh, you know, we, we agree with Mark, and of course, uh, in a scenario where you're are uh, doing a rapid decarbonization, you know, the best way to do this um, is pricing of, of carbon. And, and if you are going to do rapid decarbonization, it, the easiest and quickest and most economical way of doing that is replacing coal with natural gas. Uh, You're reducing your CO2 by at least half, and, and then you also get a lot of other benefits. So, of course, when when Europe started uh, switching out coal and, and replacing it with, with natural gas, it was because you wanted to get rid of pollution, uh, air pollution, acid rain. So you get all these benefits in addition. And, and, and also the fact that the LNG is very cheap these days. So it doesn't really cost a lot to, 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 to do this. And, and so if you look at the BP Energy Week, they have some projections. And even in a rapid decarbonization scenario, you are doubling the LNG, market by 2035 and actually it goes quicker with decarbonization than business as usual scenario Uh, and then once you're getting a bit longer and and the hydrogen technology matures and becomes more economically we will probably also be starting doing more carbon capture and and that's why we also have a big section on carbon capture in our investor day in february it's because eventually of course it, it doesn't it's not sufficient to reduce the CO2 emission by half. You have to get it down to zero. And if you pull out the the, the carbon from the CH4 molecule, you basically are at the hydrogen level. So then you can capture carbon as as a gas and, and store it underground, or, or you can capture it in solid state like hydrogen pyrolysis and and actually reuse the carbon. So so we definitely think uh, you know we will have a lot of growth, and and uh, eventually also it will become not only the, the bridge, but it could also be the destination by using carbon capture.
1: All right, thanks. So uh, you mentioned Europe there. Uh, just uh, some some background from 2018 to 2019, Europe saw LNG imports increase a massive 67% year on year. Um, while uh, perhaps the Asian momentum uh, was not, not as large uh, as that, um, and uh, coupled with everything, and trying to understand the economics behind the switch, and primarily it was the gas to gas to coal switch in Europe, which drove this sort of demand, and. Um, how does that look if you look to uh, China or other Asian economies, uh, are they uh, starting to move in the same direction and, uh, and, and subsidizing this sort of coal to gas switch? Because on a like-for-like basis, it just um, easily economically doesn't make sense unless you start to price, as you're saying, uh, carbon in this respect. Is that something you're seeing uh, happening now in Asia, or is Asia sort of losing its interest uh, in gas, would you say? You can start if you like, Tony.
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you. Um, no, um, I don't think that uh, China is losing ground. Uh, I think that what we saw um, with this, um, uh, you know, increase in European imports was uh, largely a result of the COVID, uh, you know, the, the situation. Um, I think that, you know, since then, you know, China has picked up the slack. That, you know, they, uh, you know, they are uh, importing a lot of LNG. Uh, they will continue to do so, Um, and when it comes to, you know, this uh, coal to gas switch, I think that also China has done a very good job. Um, If we, uh, I mean, you mentioned that uh, coal uh, peaked in 2013-14, and prior to that, you saw that, you know, China was consuming a lot of coal. After that, uh, the consumption of coal in China has been relatively stable. Now, they haven't decreased it, but it's stable. Had they been uh, increasing at the pace that they were doing prior to 13, 14 um, we would have seen, um, uh, you know, a net increase of coal consumption worldwide. I think. So um, uh, I think that uh, uh, yeah, China has done uh, a good job. Uh, more is required. Um, they are putting the incentives or the pressure, uh, you know, to switch uh, over to gas. Uh, but you know, China is. It's a huge economy. It's a huge um, uh, economy. They need, um, you know, reliable and stable power. Uh, of course, renewables are part of that uh, equation. But it's easier to rely, uh, for example, on gas, uh, um, you know, versus uh, many small renewable plants. Um, so we think, uh, uh, yeah, that uh, you know, China is on the right track. They they've started importing again and. Uh, uh, and we will we will see this uh, this continuation of a coal to gas, or at least a, a significant in, uh, increase in uh, LNG consumption uh, or LNG imports to China. So the
1: willingness uh, to pay for
3: it.
4: that, Jorgen if that's okay. Um, you yes, know, last okay. time around in 2018, we saw a uh, large increase of Chinese imports of LNG that was tied heavily to the cap- capacity they had as, 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 as storage uh, and also import capacity. So we see uh, both those actually increasing over the next two, three years uh, and starting actually for tw- from uh, 2020, 21, 22. So you know, both those indicators. Um, uh, should 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 allow uh, the country in itself to improve on the importing uh, of energy because they have the infrastructure to do so don't forget that this is an infrastructure business uh, in, in in many ways and forms uh, now obviously the coal to gas uh, switch has been taking place you know um, uh, shell um, famously had a a slide that you would see uh, the change in the actual um, pollution in Beijing, uh, which uh, back in I don't know maybe 2017 was one of the uh, um, most, uh, uh, or anyways, a polluted city, uh, a heavy cold gas, which uh, was almost proportionally and linearly correlated to a to cleaner air. So I think both those fundamentals uh, should 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 play over the next. Uh, a couple of years uh, in the country's import and energy mix and also you know their five-year plan has actually as a country uh clearly shown um that um uh, that, that that should continue
1: and um uh, yeah so so what would be sort of the long-term price outlook for lng landed in asia and the willingness to pay for that uh, are we are we seeing any any uh, infrastructure uh, limitations that, that might hamper with the price of landed LNG in Asia. I know Tellurian, for instance, has a, has a business model where they're aiming at uh, providing Asia with, uh, with LNG at maybe five, five and a half dollars per MBTU. Uh, is, uh, what, what's your view on that, Tarek? Where will the willingness for gas uh, to pay for gas be in Asia going forward?
5: You're, you're watching the gas market start to correlate across the world and you're, you're, you're seeing this whole thing commoditized on a global basis, which didn't exist before, right? And this is something that we've been talking about for five or six years, and it was a question of when, not if, uh, the gas market was going to commoditize. And now as it's happening, you really have to look at what is your cost of infrastructure uh, to, to deliver LNG to the market and then your cost of receiving infrastructure and you'll have some volatility in market prices along the way but you in order to amortize a new facility as you're growing in this industry um, you have to have a certain price and i think somewhere around i will say about six dollars landed in asia you will have gas at the source you will have your infrastructure costs amortized and you will have your shipping component taken care of at you know, long-term charter rates, and you will have your LNG receiving infrastructure um, also paid for, um, and then you go on to the local market, which will take care of the local market infrastructure. Um, but $6 landed in Asia, I think, gives a small return to equity shareholders and is a reasonable price for long-term LNG, and we're starting to see you know, sort of um, th- those prices start to materialize for January and February this year after a long hiatus of not coming anywhere near that. So I think somewhere in the $6 to $8 range long-term is a reasonable place where shareholders make a return and people don't pay, you know, the 12 to 15 to $20 that we saw uh, in sort of the post-Fukushima world um, and, you know, the sort of super frothy, uh, part of the uh, of the gas market evolution. So, I think six to eight dollars landed in Asia is where is a nice
1: medium place to be, where you build new infrastructure and the price signals are there. I'd say that doesn't sound uh, at least uh, maybe in the lower end, but that doesn't sound too far off of what Qatar is uh, is doing on their ten percent Brent-linked uh, volume contract that was recently announced. So, yes, uh, that's a good starting point. Um, I don't know if you have any. Uh, input to that, if that's sustainable also for uh, additional volumes, or if that's something that they're just doing to renew uh, contracts at current facilities?
5: I, I mean, in a $40 Brent environment, I don't see how 10, 10% is sustainable, um, yeah. and, and it, that, that is not a price signal that tells you to build, and it doesn't even make sense for for, oil, for gas to be priced on oil anymore. It really doesn't. Uh, it's its yeah. own community. And they are more decoupled in the short term. I mean, we've seen gas prices completely volatile over the last 12 to 18 months. Uh, and oil has been, you know, plodding along between 40 and 45. Maybe hmm. it And they, 40.
1: yeah. And the, the, the Henry Hub price is also definitely on the rise in the US. And I think that uh, indicates uh, that, uh, that at least prices in Asia need to come up if you want to see those marginal volumes headed the long haul. Um, so, so it's definitely something that, uh, uh, that's shaping the markets a bit more, the Henry Hub pricing effect. Uh, you saw um, exports out of the US had 20, 77 liftings in January and was down to below 30 in July. Uh, so that was uh, an illustration of the markets being full on gas. And now the question is, uh, do you believe that uh, with the current outlook for gas prices in the US, will there be enough production to, to fuel all the, um, the export facilities in the US and, and see high utilization and much volume moving all the long haul to, to Asia?
2: Um, anyone can answer if you'd like, Mark. Yeah, sure. uh, just to go back, I, we we obviously didn't rehearse with Tarek, but I, I absolutely agree with him on the uh, the six dollars plus or so, and it kind of plays into this where we're at with the seventy seven liftings. The the if you look back at the at the pricing from from Asia, for instance, I think you mentioned it was twelve or so a few years ago, but right before that it was seven, and it'll go up and down, and it'll have volatile swings. But the main thing is the arbitrage, and at six bucks or above. It's it's there to do the, the 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 deal because the the Henry Hub has been slowly trending. Uh, it hasn't moved much at all. It's moved from low two dollars to high two dollars. So his thesis is something I 100% agree with. If you look in the near term, about the 77 or the recent very recent term of the 77 liftings, um, you had a lot going on. You obviously had the the uh, the cancellations from COVID. They were 45 in each of uh, January and August. Now they're down to five in November, probably December. They're going to be zero. I think we'll see in about, in about a week. We had hurricanes. We had Hurricane Laura shutting down some Cameron. We had a number of things going on, which I don't think are going to necessarily reflect on lower liftings out of the United States going forward. I, I go back to his thesis of, of, um, of uh, the, the prices are going to be lower and they're going to be decoupled, uh, but there's going to be gas there for, uh, for export for sure.
1: Yeah. Great. Right. Yeah, um, and I would like to
4: add to that if that's okay. Uh, or in, go um, ahead. So,
1: the September numbers
4: they have is, is 45. Uh, Cargos in 2019, that was 48. So, um, that's not too far off from uh, what I would call pre COVID levels. Uh, I don't know if the October numbers are out, um, but it's definitely headed in the right direction. And don't forget, you know, every market had a little bit of a a bump, obviously, uh, with what's happening today. So, Mm. you know, it's definitely headed in the right direction. Headed in the right direction.
1: It's um, uh, another aspect that's been very, uh, very typical, I'd say, for the LNGC space is that you've had a rapid development in in vessel technology. And I think that's worth worth talking a bit about. Uh, The residual risk has been a hot topic. Um, so we analysts, we, we usually generalize. So the way I see the uh, LNG sea fleet, uh, roughly 40% steam turbine, 40% diesel electric, and then 15% of so modern last generation two stroke uh, vessels. Um so in terms of engine technology I guess we're rather close we're we're full circle you can say you're back to the same technology that you use in bulkers and 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 oil carriers so so essentially uh, what's been used for a long time uh, but then on containment technology uh, you've had a massive improvement uh, on the boil off rate. Um, so one question is how much better can that get? Uh, and also the size aspect of the vessels, which has grown from 170, no, 120 to above 170 and maybe towards 200 uh, cubic meters in capacity. Uh, how How big can vessels get? So I guess the question is how much more technological development uh, can you see uh, basis the rapid development that has been? I don't know if you'd like to start on that, Tony.
3: Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, uh, look, uh, I think you're right. We are close to actually in LNG, maybe we're a little bit more than full circle because you know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the propulsion on the LNG side is with, is with the gas injection, which we don't have on the tankers and bulkers. So there's been a little bit you know, more evolution there. But in terms of efficiency, we are, we're full circle. Um, um, so, uh, where we are at the moment, there is nothing new propulsion wise uh, in the horizon. Of course, there are, I mean, people talk about uh, gas turbines to be used, uh, running on dry fuel, et cetera. This is something a little bit forward uh, looking, and I don't think you can go and order a vessel like that today. So I think the most interesting uh, aspect of it is exactly the size. Um, we've seen, as you said, a tremendous evolution in size. Um, from 128,000 cube up to, to, you know, 200,000 cubic uh, meters. uh, Today, when we exclude the Qatari vessels, the Qatari vessels are very particular. And and, um, um, I think that they've had some challenges in the past when it comes to compatibility. So when we look at uh, optimal size, um, optimal containment, um, I think you have to look at uh, operational restrictions, such as uh, terminal compatibility. Um, that's very important. It's important that your vessel can trade across the world, that it can deliver, you know, cargoes to the, far, you know, to the, to the far edges of the world. Um, in Dynagas, Gas, we've always been very concerned about that. Uh, um, so, um, for example, in general, our fleet has the ability to operate as conventional carriers or, as, uh, or in ice-bound uh, areas. Which kind of widened the you know widen the um, uh, you know the market a little bit for us. Uh, we did actually go out on the private side and, and ordered two hundred thousand cubic meters. Um, uh, and in particular, we were looking at restrictions like terminal compatibility and the Panama Canal. Um, we were thinking that you know going forward, um, when we see. Um, you know what will all of these 174,000 cubic meters orders be used for? And we believe it's a good long-haul ship, more than kind of you know uh, a short haul. So when we analyze that, uh, you know further, you know we realized that well, if if we as Dynagas are going to focus on the, you know on the long-haul market uh, and be part of that, let's build the ultimate uh, long-haul ship. So we sized it up to 200,000 cubic, which can go through the Panama Canal. and and you will have a a very good uh, terminal terminal compatibility. Of course, um, going through the Panama Canal, you can go above 200,000 cubic meters. The problem then is that the LOA of the vessel becomes uh, above 300 meters. And that is is normally quite a big restriction on the terminal side. Um, That vessel is not for all trades. It's for the long haul trade. It's a great ship for the long haul trade. So I really believe that that, uh, the worldwide fleet uh, should, should and is consisting of different sizes, different technology to serve different trades.
1: Yeah, and is, but is it just in, in simple terms, would you say the, uh, the, the rapid technological development within this segment is, is put behind us or is it to expect a similar trend going forward?
3: I think it's largely put behind us. I think it's
1: yep. How much more money
5: can you save from going from point 0. zero, you know, five boil off to point zero three?
3: Right. I mean, of course, you can go all the way to net zero percent boil off if you just have, you know, a, a thick enough containment system and a high you know and a good enough capacity relic really plant. But you know, it's all you know, it's all uh, as you say, you know, a cost question, and you know, uh, and you do need energy to run the ships. Uh, you know, uh, you do need energy just to idle the ships as well. So it's, um, yeah, it's to find the right, you know, the right uh, design for you. And and I think what's uh, important to
4: note also is that, uh, as you said in the beginning, uh, and Tony correctly uh, also pointed out, but the the, the two stroke engine is used on the majority, super majority, probably maybe 95 to 90% of the whole worldwide shipping fleet including, including, sorry, excluding energy. So this is um, an engine uh, that people are very familiar with. So people talk about technology as, as a concept. However, you know, this is a proven industrial engine for many, 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 you know, years and generations. So, you know, there's, there's not much you can do. Uh, there, as as Tony said. Um, yeah. So uh, on the vessel on the vessel side, I think Tarek might have some insight. Uh, but as you as you probably know as well, once you order um, uh, many ships between 160 and 174s, uh, a lot of the SPAs probably get written with those margin uh, or top ups in consideration. So that becomes yeah. your let's say in the in, in the tanker trade. Uh, which maybe uh, Mark is a little bit more familiar with, um, that becomes your workhorse, your Afromax. So once you have that established, then it's kind of difficult to really change the dynamics because your whole infrastructure is based on that. So what Tony's saying is great and nice, however, and it's nice that he has the, uh, the, uh, the ice class ships for you know, the two terminals that take them, but it doesn't mean that that's going to be the trade in itself so you know there are going to be one-offs of course in any trade in any market but you know yeah. if, if if you have now 200 ships that are going to be ordered 174s and maybe roughly and i don't have the exact number but let's say 160s 1255 or another 200 that's pretty much the trade there so maybe maybe yeah. that question is tarix tarix to answer
1: I think we'll. I think we'll need to leave it at that. We need to get uh, get on a bit, but we'll we'll touch a bit more on it. I think uh, later. But just a quick question to you, the uh, The gas prices have um, uh, the gas prices have not been moving in the right direction. They've been headed downward um, more or less the past three years, and I guess that reflects a bit in the advantage of having uh, top notch vessels uh, and and modern vessels uh, in service. Um, it hasn't really been reflected as much of a profit uh, advantage in the f- in, in the freight rates achieved for those vessels so far. Um, is that uh, sort of a valid explanation? Would you say, Istan? And if uh, gas prices are to pick up, you'd think that would uh, that would
0: uh, go back out. I think you know, in general, of course, uh, gas prices have rallied from the bottom now. So you know, TTF by. Price- in Europe was one dollar, in JKM was 1.8. Now uh, TTF is 480 and JKM is 550. So we are approaching, you know, more normal uh, gas prices. And and keep in mind, you know, if you are going to six to eight dollars, you know, it's pretty cheap. You know, you're talking on equivalent uh, to oil 35, 45 dollars for LNG, which is a cleaner fuel. So. So, uh, you know, it, it, I think, you know, prices at these levels are quite attractive for the con- consumer. Uh, in terms of all ships, of course, they are, you know, basically spending half the fuel of our old steamship, uh, And then uh, of, of parcel sizes like, like 25, 30% bigger. So, uh, you know, we save a lot on, on the fuel savings. Uh, of course, we save more when, when gas prices are higher. So of course, then, you know, you can command a a bigger premium because what you are doing is consuming a bit of the cargo every day in order to propel the vessel. Uh, and then if you're consuming less, you have more to sell at discharge port. Uh, but it's also another aspect of consuming less fuel, and that's the environmental credentials. So uh, a lot of uh, energy companies these days are becoming more uh, concerned about uh, emissions and, uh, you know, the, the good thing with the two-stroke engines, of course, much more efficient engine, as uh, Tony explained, you know, we have a thermal efficiency above 50%, which is more or less like similar to our combined cycle gas uh, power plants. Uh, so, you know, emissions are much less and they are much less than the, the, the four-stroke when it comes to methane slip, because methane slip on a mega ship is margin, you know, it's uh, very, very limited, the 0.35 grams per kilowatt hour. And then on the XTF, it's basically reduced 50% compared to a high fuel. So, so if, uh, you know, if you are in Shell and BP and you know, the major, super major these days, you are also getting measured, not only on financial metrics, but also on environmental metrics. And, and you will have a, a target plan for emission reduction, which is tied to a management incentive plan. So of course, people are very incentivized also to go for the newer ships, also because of, of environmental credential, not only economics. So if you look at the spreads today, so Fernlees came out with the uh, market assessment report yesterday, High fuels you know, 70 to 74,000 depending on basin and, and, and the premium on, on our ships is, is still 10000 $12,000 even in a low gas price environment because they are more efficient than these other ships people want.
1: Think that uh, that's a good layup to the next question, which is there are a lot of contracts or, or vessels that have been on contracts that are rolling off at the moment, um, both steam and also some diesel these electric uh, vessels. And uh, I think what a lot of people are questioning is what are those vessels going to do? And uh, now that they're rolling. Don't ask off contract, me. I don't and, have any. No, no. <laughs> <I'm>, uh, <laughs> it's a, it, it will be directed. So, but uh, it's, um, uh, so, so the question is, what are they going to do and which direction are, are second-hand values going? Is uh, it's, it's proving difficult to close deals on, on second-hand vessels uh, coming off contract and are, are charters willing to, to take them on? Uh, what do you feel from, uh, from the charter side in that uh, respect? I don't know if you'd like to start, uh, Christos.
4: Sure. Um, well, okay. The 174s, so our company has 11 174s uh, on long-term contracts. Now, we have uh, another company that we manage their vessels that have TFDs, um, and obviously, uh, we see the market. We just fixed the Chinese cargo, for argument's sake, for, for, uh, for uh, around four months at, at 60000 so that's a TFD. So uh, whoever wants to put a premium on flex, that's great. Um, uh, maybe it's what Oyston says, uh, I don't know. However, um, the real market uh, on the 160s is, there is a market there. Uh, it was built on the Pacific trade rather than the Atlantic rate trade. So there's definitely uh, a market from, for the TFDs. Now, obviously for some trades, as Oyston has correctly said, The 174 cargo lot is what the customer needs. Doesn't mean they want that ship for every cargo that they have. Uh, Obviously, if the cargo that they have is a 160, then the differential becomes a lot more competitive. So, yes, I agree that the new ships are definitely the the new 174 ships definitely uh, are what you would call, or in my mind, the US Panamax. But the 160s definitely have their own uh, market. And that's going to be, you know, uh, they're not going to disappear, if that's what you're alluding to. (laughs) These ships are built to last. So Mm -hmm. they're just going to be a a smaller, they're going to become a smaller part of the trade. So, you know, uh, if you see the, the numbers, and I think that's important, the delivered XDFs and Maggies, so every delivered two stroke. Ship is eighty. That's eighty ships in the water. In the water, that's what I have, anyways. So the total fleet is six hundred. So it's very, it's a very small percentage of the actual fleet. So I would not jump to conclusions that this is the greatest thing that ever happened. Of course, it's a very important technological change. But the TFDs are going to be around. Maybe yeah. on a discount, they're Power- going to be around.
5: Yeah, if I may, from a charterer's perspective.
4: Exactly.
1: Uh,
5: and this might go back to uh, Christos' earlier question too, right? A lot of the contracts are written where you have a range in how much volume you're going to deliver. And I will tell you that in some of the market that we've had this summer, um, you, you wanted to be on the low end of that range, right? Because if you did not want to have to fill up a ship, um, and, and buy a bunch of volume that you're going to then lose a bunch of money on on the other side. So you're going to go narrow that range. And as much as I, you know, I think that the 200s a ton of Tony are building are quite sexy, actually. Um, but when, you know, so if you have a long-term, long-haul contract that you want to fill that, that's a that's a great ship for that kind of thing. But as you've got 30% of the LNG market now on spot trade,
2: and that number is going
5: up every year, by the way. Um, you know, you need to have a combination of you know, your bigger, more efficient ships, along with your smaller, a little bit more flexible, maybe if you can get them cheaper, you know, for the one-off voyages. Uh, those are important, too. So I think having the right mix of portfolio is going to be very important for somebody that's going to be trading a mix of long-term and short-term trade. Yeah. You know I mean, Sorry. a crappy steamship, if you can get the right price for, you know, a single trade for a short distance.
1: Exactly. So, but I, is then uh, further on to that in terms of the duration of the contracts that you're seeing in the market, I, we can start with Tarek, but if any of you others would like to chime in on what the majors and such are, are discussing in terms of charter length, uh, the market has definitely been thin, you know, and the market has been at rock bottom, but uh, in terms of long-term contracts, what, what sort of duration are we looking at and are, is it, I, I don't know if, if you have any view on that, Tarek, how long would you take a vessel on and
3: to
5: say where I sit today I will have to see what the makeup of my portfolio looks like when I you know when we start to build our project out and we start to sell volumes down the line um it it, the the concern you have now is a lot of contracts are going you know sort of six years or less um I'd say two-thirds of the contracts that were signed this year follow that pattern uh with one-third being over that and that's and of that uh only maybe 10 to 15%, percent we sort of in the 15 year range. Um, so, you know, the, the, the LNG infrastructure market, like the shipping market is gonna have to adapt to the shorter tenors, which doesn't mean that you're not gonna sell to that customer for a very long time. It's just, you know, some of the pricing is gonna get re-rated. You're gonna have to be a little bit more creative on how you manage your portfolio and you're gonna have to really optimize uh, every aspect of what you're doing. Um, and look, there's precedent for it in, in every other commodity that went through uh, you know, a sort of growing into a commodity phase to a mature commodity phase. I mean, oil went through this in the 40s, 50s, through to the 70s, and by the 90s, it was a completely mature market with all the financial instruments that go through it. Uh, gas is getting to that point, right? So we are going through that commoditization phase um, and it's gonna require a lot of optimization and a lot more management and your spreads and your and your margins aren't gonna be as big as they used to be. So you have to be a lot more diligent in the management of, uh, you know, of your portfolio.
1: Yeah. And what about methane slip as an aspect to chartering in, uh, you know, the second generation diesel electric, is that something that you're getting a lot of feedback uh, on from, from the majors, for instance, is that becoming an increasing part of the discussion in chartering?
2: I can just speak to that briefly, and, and it may be contrary to what the others are seeing, but we actually haven't seen so much of that. We've seen the majors being more concentrated on, on fuel use in general, and it's largely because of, of cost rather than um, rather than the emissions. And and when it comes to the emissions, it's obviously been pretty much CO2. So if we bear in mind, um, in fact, if you look at most of the orders are XDF, and they actually have a higher methane slip than, than, than Meggie, so I'm not sure how much the... The majors have been compelled by that. The methane slip, just to be clear, is, is only about a half percent or so of greenhouse gases. And so we actually are in favor, at least TK, of more reporting to the IMO. So we can point highlight like that. It's not a huge factor. It hasn't been a huge factor. But we're happy to, happy to speak, speak to it, frankly.
4: I totally agree with uh, Mark.
1: Good. <laughs> OK, so I so, uh, headed on to uh, to the, the, the equity markets a bit more. Uh, it's been a tough time to be a publicly listed uh, LNG company in terms of uh, the pricing that you're achieving in the market. Um, it's putting a limitation, I guess, to how easy it is to print equity to fund uh, fleet growth, at least. And that could be a positive in terms of the supply and demand balance. Um, uh, what, uh, what can you do? And it also relates to a question that we got in. What can you do to restore the investors interest in, in investing in this segment, uh, going forward and, and, and what should they be aware of that they might be missing? Anyone can start. We have two minutes left, so we need to be short.
0: Continue to deliver, um, good results. I think it's the most important being uh, honest, um, transparent and, uh, you know you know for us you know it's been building stone by stone and we took the delivery of our 10 ship here on wednesday we've been increasing our backlog incrementally as we have been adding ships on the water so it's basically being a bit patient there you know lng market and the growth is a, is a long story You know, with a lot of growth ahead of us yeah anyone like to add
3: I think what uh, what Daystein said is very true. Uh, you know, LNG is a long-term game. Um, you know, the, re- the reward will come later. Um, and uh, I mean, for example, in the case of the LNG, um, we are prioritising to re- to reduce the debt levels now. We think that's a good use of proceeds when you know when the uh, when the um, uh, you know when the when the market cap is small and. Uh, uh, you know, you can build equity value going forward by significantly reducing your debt levels. So there are, there, there are many avenues, but uh, as I said, it's a long-term game. All right.
1: So thank you very much. We're out of time. It's been a pleasure uh, discussing with you and thanks so much for your time and to the audience for, for listening in. It's been a great panel,
0: very well attended and uh, you guys can't. Thank, thank you to everybody.
3: Okay, I look forward thank to
0: you. having you. With Have a, a nice day. Thank you so much Thank you.